Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist and undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my research journey and share lessons that I and others have learned in the lab. You're listening to season two, episode three. In this episode, I talk about my own research experiences at Vanderbilt. I start with explaining how I got interested in neuroscience and neuroscience research, how I got started with my research at Vanderbilt with the Neuroimaging and Brain Dynamics Lab, what I learned from doing my research at Vanderbilt, my presentations and conferences that I'm excited for that, I'm, that are upcoming, as well as future steps and future research directions that I'm really interested in. So without further ado, let's discuss. Hey everyone, so it's just going to be me today, and I wanted to take some time for this episode to talk about what got me interested in research and my research experience overall at Vanderbilt. So I wanted to do this kind of earlier this season, but I also wanted to like kind of preview what season two was going to be, which is mostly going to be kind of learning about the research experiences of others. But I also wanted to just take some time and reflect on my own research experience at Vanderbilt. So if you listen to season one, that was mostly me talking about some of the research that I did at Boystown, which was honestly one of my most impactful research experiences. And it was the research that I did over the summer full time. And I got some really interesting results and I did a really fascinating project there. But really, my research experience starts a little bit earlier than that. So I wanted to take it all the way back to last summer. Uh, So as you guys know from listening to this podcast, one of the research areas that fascinates me the most is neuroscience research. And it's funny because I didn't actually get started with, I didn't actually get interested in neuroscience until around last summer. Um, before then, I, I applied to Vanderbilt actually as a computer science major, and I was pretty dead set on doing just like the traditional computer science tech kind of path, software engineering, data science, etc., something like that. But then over the summer, I really discovered that, oh, I think neuroscience is something that really interests me as well. So how did that start? Well, it actually started from me reading a book. And the book is called uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And it's a book that basically talks about the neuroscience behind why sleep is so beneficial for us. So it talks a little bit about like REM sleep, non-REM sleep, how sleep helps consolidate our memories, how, how the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid in our brain, it washes out toxins that accumulate in our brain when we sleep, etc. And I thought that the neuroscience aspect of that book made it particularly uh, made it particularly interesting for me, and it's honestly what kind of drew me in. I I didn't know the basically like the immense power that sleep had on on your brain, um, and I thought that you know that was that was just so fascinating. It made me kind of reflect on my own life, and you know it made me reflect on how neuroscience. Really, it impacts me directly as a person. It impacts my lifestyle, how, how, how healthy I am. And just in general, it can also impact my mood, my happiness, my mental health. All those things are impacted by neuroscience. And so, uh, so from that point forward, I thought, hmm, maybe I, I, maybe I want to take a class or two in neuroscience. So I continued to read some books um, into neuroscience because I was just interested in the topic. I picked up a book called um, The Mind's Eye by Oliver Sacks, which talks about uh, basically people with visual disorders 
uh, how other parts of their sensory systems are almost able to compensate for their loss of vision or or just like some sort of visual disorder that they have, like agnosia or something. I thought that book was also really interesting and it kind of demonstrated the power that the brain has to adapt to when it's lesion, to when it's damaged. Um, and that's kind of where I learned about this whole concept known as neuroplasticity, which is something that I'm also really, really interested in going forward. And it's honestly one of the research areas that I want to pursue um, for my career. But anyway, so after reading those books, I decided to, okay, I'm going to take a neuroscience class. So in my spring semester, I enrolled in the Intro Neuroscience class, NSC 2201 here at Vanderbilt. And I think it was through that class that really solidified my just like passion for neuroscience. I vividly remember there's this one time in the class um, that kind of like solidified my desire to do neuroscience. And our professor was showing us a video of a man with Parkinson's. And so for you guys who are maybe not be aware of what Parkinson's is, basically it's a disease that affects this area of the brain known as the basal ganglia. And because the basal ganglia is responsible for the planning of movement, if your basal ganglia is damaged, then basically you have very uncoordinated movement. So in the video, this man was very, very heavily shaking, who's trembling, and he basically couldn't control himself. And then it was almost magical when, when he pressed this button that controlled to this device in his brain known as a deep, deep, deep brain stimulation device. When he pressed this button, this tremors instantly stopped, right? It was instant, just a snap of the fingers. He pressed the button and he stopped shaking. And I was like, whoa, that is like the coolest thing I have ever seen. Because like this man, he, he almost couldn't control himself and his movements beforehand. He just pressed the button and it's just all gone, like in a second. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And, you know, just the things that I learned in that neuroscience class, just like, just about how neurons connect to each other, things like um, learning and memory consolidation, long-term potentiation, the different sensory systems and their pathways and how they're all somehow related to each other and how just like the different parts of the brain are related to each other and how that gives rise to mechanisms such as cognition, creativity, intelligence, consciousness, all of those things just really, really fascinated me. And it was from then on that I knew that like, oh, I think neuroscience is definitely something that I'm like super, super passionate about. And, you know, like beforehand, I, I, I'm still I'm still doing computer science. Don't get me wrong. But it's just that when I do computer science, I don't necessarily feel that spark. You know, it's like I, I don't necessarily feel that just like drive to like, you know, dig further and further into computer science. It, it's not like neuroscience. It's with neuroscience. It's like I, I discover some some area, Let, let's say I discover something like long-term potentiation, how that works. I can literally go into just like a rabbit hole, just like researching more and more and more into that. Cause like long-term potentiation, if you think about it, it's just synapses strengthening. But how do they strengthen? Well, it's because there are more receptors on the end of a, a it's, there's more receptors on that postsynaptic terminal, which makes it so that neurotransmitters combined easier. And that causes a synapse to strengthen. I think that's such a fascinating concept. It's such a simple mechanism for something that's so universal. And I think that's really like the embodiment of neuroscience for me in general. It's such simple mechanisms that have given rise to some of our most complex traits. And I think that is one of the coolest things in the world. So that's how I got interested in neuroscience. How did I get started with Vanderbilt research in particular? So I knew I wanted to do some sort of neuroscience research, but I also didn't want to completely, you know, just give up computer science, right? Because computer science is such a useful tool. So I looked within the computer science department here at Vanderbilt and specifically for labs that kind of did maybe computational neuroscience or 
um, did neuroscience research, but were really, really informed with computer science principles. And that's where I discovered the neuroimaging and brain dynamics lab, or the nerdy lab directed by Dr. Katie Chang, which is the lab that I'm currently working part of, or that I'm currently uh, working in, and I've been working in it um, ever since January of 2022. I worked over it in the summer, and I'm still continuing it today. So I found this lab on the website, um, and I reached out to the PI, and I basically said I'm really interested in like computer science-related neuroscience research. Here's my resume. I was wondering like if we can set up a time to talk about particular projects. And roughly a week later, uh, Dr. Chen got back to me. We had a little discussion about some of the projects um, that were available in her lab, and I thought that one of them um, was really cool, and I decided to take on that project. So about that project, so basically the uh, neuroimaging and brain dynamics lab, the nerdy lab, um, one of their primary goals is to try to better improve analysis techniques for neuroimaging methods, including functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. So the way fMRI works, it's very interesting. It's an indirect measure of neural activity. So it's an indirect measure because it uses something called the blood oxygenation level dependent signal or the bolt signal. The idea is that if a particular area of your brain is more active, then it's going to require more blood. And blood has oxygen in it because of the hemoglobin in it. So basically, the fMRI picks up on that oxygenation content. It says if there's more blood in a particular area, more oxygen, then that area is more active. Now, the problem with that is that, well, first of all, we've used bold for many, many different studies. fMRI is a very, very powerful tool. One of the problems with it, however, is that because bold is an indirect measure of neural activity, right, it uses blood oxygenation instead of just like neural markers themselves. Um, it's affected by a lot of different physiological factors, fe features, excuse me, it's, it's affected by a lot of physiological features such as heart rate or respiration that are both related to the blood circulation um, of our body. So bold is heavily impacted by physiological features such as blood, um, such as heart rate and respiration. And that's also known as the physiological component of the bold signal, right? The physiological component meaning these other components such as heart rate and respiration. So bold is really Im heavily impacted by these physiological components. Um, and this has been demonstrated before in the past. What has not necessarily been demonstrated it has, is how age impacts the physiological component. Meaning, when we age, does heart rate and respiration have more of an impact on the bolt signal or less of an impact on the bolt signal? And the reason why this line of area of research is really important is because it has a lot to do with the blood vasculature, or the blood vasculature of our brain, um, which is like the vessel health of our brain, right? Maybe through the physiological component, we can reveal certain um, fact factors about our blood flow in our brain that could uh, be a proxy of our vessel health and can tell things like vessel stiffening and could possibly lead to early biomarkers of things like strokes. So theoretically, in the perfect world, we can uh, take a patient's fMRI scan, which is non completely non-invasive, and then kind of take the bolt signal from the fMRI scan and then extract that physiological component from that bolt signal. And from that, we can tell, you know, are they at risk of something like stroke, which is like, it's life-saving, potentially. So that's kind of my project. And you know, I worked through that project for um, the entire semester last, last semester and over the summer. Um, 
one of the papers, this is really interesting, one of the papers that most informed my final result, I actually found that paper really, really late into the last semester. Um, I want to say that I found that paper, well, technically my, my PI actually found it and she sent it to me. Um, I think she found it in April and that was basically three weeks away from the end of term. So very, very recent. Um, but she found that paper and that paper kind of, uh, it really changed it, it was like a, it was a turning point of my research project because kind of before then I was mostly working on like pre-processing and things like that. But then that paper was like the primary thing driving our methods. So basically the way that that paper worked is it showed that um, age does have an impact on something called the hemodynamic response function or HRF, which is a way that you can model a bolt signal based on a task-based stimuli. And basically the HRF, the hemodynamic response function, exhibits a very canonical shape. Um, this function, it kind of like starts out, it peaks, and then after it peaks, it kind of drops again. So the peak is like a local maximum, and then it drops again to like a local minimum, and then it kind of flattens out again. Um, so basically, these researchers found that the HRF, which is again, models how the bold reacts to task-based stimuli, the HRF, uh, the, the, the shapes of the HRF, the specific features like the peak, the peak amplitude, the trough amplitude, the amount of time it gets to the peak, amount of time it takes to get to the trough, all those different features change as a function of age. And specifically, they found that when someone ages, all those different features kind of depress. So the peak amplitude becomes less pronounced, the trough amplitude becomes less pronounced, the time to the peak and the time to trough both take longer. Basically, this, this HRF kind of just compresses and elongates when someone ages, which is that that's pretty cool, right? That, that just shows again, how the bold signal is very responsive to things like age. So in that line of research, I, I kind of applied that to my own project. We looked at these two functions um, that kind of represent the physiological component of the bold signal, namely the respiratory response function, the RRF, and the cardiac response function, the, the CRF. And these two functions kind of can model the bold signal based on our breathing and our heart rate. The idea is that basically if you convolve our heart rate with the CRF, and if you convolve the respiration with the RRF, you can almost predict the bolt signal, which is pretty cool. So what was interesting is that the CRF and the RRF both have very similar features as that hemodynamic response function, the HRF. Basically, they both have this initial peak, which is this local maximum, then they drop down to the local minimum, and then finally level out again. So I asked myself, okay, let's model basically my study after this other paper. Let's see how these features of the HRF or these features of the RRF and the CRF change as a function of age. And I initially predicted that, you know, it would have a very similar effect as the, as the HRF. I thought they would both, as someone ages, I thought they would both kind of like condense and elongate and basically just become, the, the graph just becomes more compressed. Um, I was wrong, actually. This, this was not correct. Um, is it's actually really really cool basically with the rrf this is true with the rrf as someone ages with respiration as someone ages their rrf features become less more condensed so the peak amplitude decreases the trough amplitude decreases the time to trough the time to peak they both elongate basically this graph is very similar to the hrf what that's basically saying is that as someone ages respiration has less of an impact on the bolt signal so this is this is kind of what i expected what I did not expect was that the CRF had a completely opposite response. As someone ages, the CRF peak becomes more pronounced. The trough becomes more pronounced. The time to trough, the time to peak become less. What this is basically saying is that as someone ages, 
their cardiac, their heart rate has more of an impact on the bolt signal. That's really cool. So as someone ages, respiration, their breathing, less of an impact on bold, their heart rate, more of an impact on bold. And I was like, whoa, what, what is kind of going on there? Right. I, I talked to my PI, she had a really similar response. I, uh, we even talked to one of our, um, grant collaborators and, uh, she, she was also like, yeah, that, that's like super, super interesting. We wonder why that's happening. Um, and I, I checked the code again. It was definitely correct. Like I, I did all the statistical analysis correct. And this was, this was the result. It was, it was really fascinating. Um, and we were just like, yeah, what, what's kind of happening here? You know, why are they having like opposite effects? Um, so that's kind of what my project is doing right now this semester. We're kind of trying to explain, you know, why do the heart rate and the respiration, they're both physiological components at the end of the day, right? Like before in the past, when we kind of examined bold and we knew that physiological components impacted the bold signal and we kind of grouped together respiration and heart rate. But now we know that we can't just do that, right? Because they, they have an opposite effect as someone ages. So we're trying to kind of basically see why that's happening. Um, uh, we, have a, we have a couple of hypotheses so far, but nothing, nothing super concrete. Um, but that, that's for like later exploration. So that's basically my project. Now I kind of wanted to talk about basically like, you know, what, what did I learn for myself? What did I, what I learn while doing Vanderbilt research? What I learned is that research is not a linear process. And what I mean by that, I mean, you don't necessarily make constant progress every single day. There's some days that you make very, very little progress. There may be weeks um, that you just don't make any progress, but then suddenly like you, you get hit with this wave of inspiration. You read this paper that, you know, is just pivotal. And then suddenly that one day is just like, oh my gosh, it's like a Eureka moment. You, you just suddenly know what to do. You do the analysis and the analysis is significant. Right. So for anybody out there listening to this, like just know that, you know, it, there are going to be days where you're doing your research, you don't get results and you may feel like you, you may feel like you're unproductive, that you haven't been doing anything. But in reality, that's not necessarily true, right? The fact that you're trying to do certain analyses, right? The fact that you're trying all these different things, trying to find what works and what doesn't, I think that itself is a measure of productivity, right? For me, again, this the paper that I read that informed my research, the, this HRF paper in response to age, I literally read that three weeks before the term was over. And that's when I made the most progress. Up to then, I mostly just did pre-processing. It wasn't, it wasn't much. But then after that, like, oh my gosh, I found out like, this is how I should approach my paper. This, this, is, how, this is how the research is meant to be done. And I did that, I did that project, I did, I did that line of methodology and it, and it worked, right? So it, it took me the vast majority of the semester to even figure out you know, how to approach the method section of my paper. So that's one thing I learned. The second thing I learned from this project is that you really have to be proactive when it comes to research. You really, really need to ask for help when you're struggling with it, right? Like at the end of the day, you know, if I didn't reach out to my PI with questions about the papers that I was reading, I don't think I would have understood this project very well. Because if you've tried to read a research paper in a field that you're not too super familiar with, especially if you're an undergraduate, right? You're not like an expert in this topic. You're going to encounter a lot of jargon. Jargon meaning just like words that are super niche to that field, right? If you don't have somebody who's guiding you throughout that process, it's going to be really, really difficult 
for you to understand and to kind of pick up what those authors are trying to say. So the moral of the story here is that you really need to seek out help actively, right? You can't necessarily expect someone to hold your hand the entire way and to like kind of guide you through the process because that's probably not going to happen. People are busy themselves. You have to be the one that reaches out to others to ask for help. And a similar thing for, for being proactive also applies to presenting at uh, conferences, submitting papers, et cetera, all these like accomplishments that we think of in research. So I learned that, you know, my research, this result was really interesting, right? This result that I found, the opposite effects of cardiac and respiration on the bold when someone ages, that's really, really interesting. And I really wanted to present that to other people. Now, normally, like, if I didn't reach out to other people asking them about opportunities, I don't think they would have gone back to me, right? Because, again, they're busy. They have their own things to do. That's totally valid. But I made an active effort to look to places to present. And I think that really came from um, one of the undergraduates in my lab. Uh, I'm good friends with her. Um, she... She was also able to present at, um, at a conference. It was like a mini Alzheimer's conference in, um, in spring semester. And I thought that was like the coolest thing. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I want to do that, right? I want to also present my, my research to like a conference or whatever. Like I want to present my research to other people. Um, so I'm, I made a conscious effort to reach out to my PI and ask for opportunities to, prevent, pr to present my research. And lo and behold, I found two absolutely incredible opportunities. Um, the first one was the Vanderbilt Undergraduate Research Fair that was held earlier the school year in early September. Um, so I presented basically a, a little poster for my results at that research fair. And I want to say that that research fair was like insanely important for um, helping me kind of approach my research. Um, the reason why I say that is because when you get the chance to interact with people who are also very knowledgeable in your research topic, they tend to give you a lot of really great ideas. And it was through that research paper where I interacted with one of our lab's collaborators and he basically gave me the advice because he's done this research before. He, he basically said that he, he provided me a way to analyze um, the stiffness of a vessel like vessel stiffening via heart rate variability which is a proxy for like vessel stiffening right and we didn't have like vessel stiff stiffness data necessarily in our data set or like vagus nerve health data in our data set we didn't have that but he provided me like ways where we can kind of use other things that we did have to gauge vessel stiffening or vagus health nerve, vagus nerve health or something like that. Um, and that was something that was incredibly insightful and that wouldn't done, I would not have gone if it was not for that opportunity. And I really discovered that sharing my research is something that makes me feel alive. It's something that gives me so much energy, kind of just discussing my findings with others, kind of hearing what they have to say answering their questions and just talking about what I did and what I found that, that it just gives me so much energy. It, it really does. And I, I, there are very, very few things in the world that honestly make me feel that alive. 
like normally I would say I'm a pretty reserved person. I, I self-identify as an introvert, but whenever I, you know, talk about my research, go to like conferences or whatever, it's just like the social butterfly within me kind of comes out. And I'm really glad that I found, you know, that research kind of does this to me. It kind of brings out the, the energy within me to like kind of share what my findings are. So that was one opportunity that I found um, through reaching out. The second opportunity um, is the one that's particularly exciting. This is, um, so I, I submitted my abstract. I wrote up an abstract for my findings um, and it got accepted to actually to the Society for Neuroscience annual conference of uh, 2022, which is going to be held in San Diego in this November. Um, and I'm actually going to be presenting there. And this is probably going to be one of the biggest professional experiences in my entire life because this is the single biggest international neuroscience conference in the world like everyone is going to be there and you know just <laughs> if i thought that you know the vanderbilt undergraduate research fair gave me a lot of insight i can't even imagine i can't even begin to imagine what this conference will help do for me and what insights i'll gain from this conference and again i asked i i figured you know i might as well submit to this because you know, it's the biggest conference in the world. So then I, one of the lab members, actually a graduate student um, in our lab had already included me as one of the co-authors for her abstract that also got accepted. So I'm like, okay, might as well, I'll submit mine as well. Uh, I'll, I'll just be the first author. This is my project. Um, yeah, and it got accepted. And um, I, I wouldn't have done this if I didn't try, if I wasn't proactive with this. So I learned that, you know, with research, so, so important that you got to be proactive. You got to ask, you got to do for what you want because you know, not, other people are not necessarily going to do things for you. All right. Um, I wanted to kind of conclude this episode by talking about future steps. So I'm going to be fully transparent on this podcast and say that so far this school year, I've done less research than I had originally hoped. Um, and a lot of that is because, you know, I have, I'm, I'm a busy person. I have other things to do. My schoolwork is, it's challenging. I have other things to balance. But I, I do want to say that, you know, research is something that I, is very, very near and dear to my heart. It's something I want to do in the future. It's something that I definitely want to continue doing in, the under, in my undergrad. You know, this podcast is, I love doing this podcast because I love talking about research, et cetera. And kind of the, one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, why I'm talking about my own experiences today is because I want to make a commitment going forward on this podcast to kind of talk about my research, um, talk about my research updates, similar to how I did so in season one, where every single week I talked about my Boys Town research updates. I wanted to do a similar thing here. I wanted to commit myself to this podcast so that I can talk about my research updates with my nerdy lab research at Vanderbilt. So that is a commitment that I'm making right here right now. Um, next steps, what are they for the Vanderbilt research? Well, can you, you know, continue researching, you know, why is it that heart rate and respiration have such an opposing impact on the bold signal, et cetera. There's certain, um, there's certain lines of research that I'm taking, uh, that I think would be really cool. One thing, again, as I mentioned earlier, that whole heart rate variability, um, concept I'm currently looking at this little toolbox that breaks down various components of uh, heart rate variability and kind of can allow us to ludicate uh, certain aspects of our like vessel health based on uh, based on HRV or variability and other measures. That's one area of research. Another thing is that 
I also definitely want to branch out with the types of research that I'm doing. So right now I'm doing fMRI research and I think this has been incredibly impactful for my career and I really, really love what I do. But at the end of the day, neuroscience is such an interdisciplinary concept, right? Um, in neuroscience, there are multiple subfields. There's like systems neuroscience, behavioral neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, um, molecular and cellular neuroscience, neurochemistry, etc. There are so many different fields. And at the end of the day, all of these fields kind of come together to try to answer what's going on with our brain. And right now, for the most part, the research that I've done is related to systems neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience. This is like the neuroscience that you think of when it's like bigger picture using like fMRI or other neuroimaging techniques to kind of like see what's going on with their brain and kind of see like which general areas are active um, during like a certain task. That's kind of what I'm doing right now. Uh, this is mostly like dry lab research. I really want to experience wet lab research as well. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing the research I'm doing next summer um, at the University of Tokyo as part of the Amgen Scholars Program, which is in that program that's going to be mostly wet lab. And that's looking at synaptic plasticity with in vivo calcium imaging and two photon microscopy, which is literally you analyze the neuron, the synapse connection of like um, of a slice of hippocampus, for example. And you kind of image that with calcium as a as like a marker such that, you know, when there's more calcium in a synapse, calcium is required for a synapse to fire and action potential, uh, which is like neurotransmitters being released in the synaptic cleft. And that's what causes neurons to kind of communicate with each other. Calcium is required. So theoretically, if you can look at the calcium concentration in a synapse, that can tell you how active it is. And that can potentially tell you how that synapse is changing over time, which is basically it exhibiting neuroplasticity. Um, so this is something that I'm really interested in because I've been looking mostly, so far up to this point, I've been looking mostly at like large scale, the brain as a whole, whereas this project is really looking at the level of synapses, right? It's, it's about as small as you can get. So this is really cool. I, I'm also really interested in like animal research um, and specifically research related to macaque monkeys. Uh, again, like I, th I think animal research can really tell us a lot about neuroscience that human research can't necessarily do for obvious ethical reasons. Um, there, I, I, one of the classes that I'm taking right now called The Changing Brain, um, it's probably one of my favorite classes I'm taking right now. It's a class dedicated to talking about neuroplasticity and a lot of the research papers that we have read in this class have looked at like mice and macaque studies and obviously there are like ethical concerns with animal research, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but given our current infrastructure that we have right now with imaging the brain, it's not exactly feasible to do a lot of the things that we want to do with humans. We can really only do it with animals. Um, but even with that, like we can tell, we can learn so much about our brain function by studying animals. Uh, there's one particular study that I found super interesting uh, that talked about things like the, the, these this concept called place cells and grid cells in the hippocampus. And the idea is that when an animal is at a specific place, uh, the or one particular cell in the hippocampus, one particular place cell in the hippocampus will become active. But then as that animal goes to like a different place, a different place cell will become active. And then as it goes to a different place, a different place cell will be active. So the idea is that 
different place cells depending on their activity and code for where the animal is in a particular space. Right. That's super cool. And it kind of sheds light on how the hippocampus encodes spatial information. And what's even cooler is that one of the, uh, one of the students in our class actually presented a paper that talked about how place cells don't actually, they're not actually only responsible for encoding places. They're not only responsible for encoding spatial memory. They can also encode things like sound frequencies. He found that this paper found that there's an overlap between the firing of a place cell and the firing of encoding a specific frequency of sound. Those t that, that same cell encoded two pretty distinct things. Um, you know, and so what if that one cell encodes even more? What if it can encode things like time? What if it can encode things like episodic memory or something, right? That's something that's really interesting. And that's kind of more in line with some of the research that I wanna do um, in graduate school and possibly beyond. Um, I think taking this class, The Changing Brain, has really taught me that one thing that I really wanna study is neuroplasticity. And that means how the brain exactly responds to both learning memory, aging, as well as neurological disorders. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And basically I've been doing these thought experiments, right? Right now, based on the work of previous neuroscientists, like such as Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize back in 2000, um, we, we know kind of the biological mechanisms that are required for our brain to learn things, right? We know that, for example, you have to activate calcium-mediated kinases, and that allows you to insert like these receptors on the synaptic terminals. We know all of that. What we don't know is what individual memories look like in the brain. How exactly does the brain change when it learns something? We don't know how that works. We know what processes have to be active for that to happen, but we don't know what individual memories look like in the brain, which synapses are strengthened, which circuits change, right? We don't know all of that. And I think if we do know that, that could lead to so many possible avenues for discovery. Think about it this way, right? Let's take a healthy person and let's take a person with Alzheimer's. The healthy person, when they learn, their circuit, kind of their neural circuits change in one certain way. But then when someone with Alzheimer's learns something, their neural circuits exhibit a very, very different response. If we can image, if we can model or predict exactly how those two circuits of those two different people change, we can almost view which synapses are different, which connections are different, which connections are impaired between the healthy person and the person with Alzheimer's. And we're also simultaneously discovering a lot of new therapeutics, such as designer receptors or um, TMS or TDCS, like stimulation techniques, deep brain stimulation, that can allow for synaptic strengthening or also synaptic depression. We have those therapeutics. What if we can use those therapeutics to target the exact damaged synapses that are responsible for the Alzheimer person with Alzheimer's not to be able to learn properly? or to memorize things properly. Theoretically, if we could do that, we can solve, we can cure a lot of diseases that are related to memory or learning impairment.
So that's just a, that's a little thought experiment that I was doing um, in the past. And uh, this kind of research is something that like really, really fascinates me. Um, and yeah, I, I just mostly wanted to kind of branch out and kind of do research that are possibly related to this. Who knows in the future? Um, I'm doing, I'm studying neuroscience here. So, uh, and I'm doing the honors program. So I want to write a thesis at the end of the day um, that kind of shares my new findings. And I think, you know, maybe something related to this would be really, really fascinating. But yeah, that's, that's kind of all I had for today. Uh, I really just wanted to talk about my own experiences, my own thoughts, some of my updates lately. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. Please do not hesitate to reach out with any inquiries at richard.w.song at vanderbilt.edu. That's richard.w.song at vanderbilt.edu. So long for now, and I'll see you next time.